What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the show, Oded Galor, the economist and author, discusses his bold new book, A Reflection on the Nature of Humanity, which puts hope and optimism at the centre of its argument. Oded Galor is an economist at Brown University. His new book, The Journey of Humanity, The Origins of Wealth and Inequality, is rethinking some of the big ideas that have surrounded the story of humankind so far, and possibly the ones shaping its future, too. Our host for today's discussion is Kamal Ahmed. Journalist, author and editor-in-chief of the news movement, he's also former BBC News editorial director. Here's Kamal with more. Thank you so much and welcome. This is, this is the first in-person Intelligence Squared event I've done for a long time, so it's so lovely. Thank you so much for coming out for very good reason, because Oded Galor, Professor of Economics at Brown University, as you say, Hannah, a reassuringly slim volume, but so much depth and thoughtfulness within it. Um, for those of you who uh, have gone back to flying, it's just about the right length to get you to New York and back in reading terms. So I was in New York last week and I read it there and back. And I, I sort of set off, Oded, thinking about the world around us. Ukraine, the crisis of COVID and what it had revealed about inequality in, in, in the way different countries and within countries uh, were treated. And I sat down in my seat and I opened this book, and the book is packed full of optimism. And what a lovely adventure for me to be able to read something at a time of such crisis that we're in at the moment, to read this thematic step back from the trials and tribulations that we're facing at present, to think more uh, generously about humanity. So I was very grateful for that. As we all know, um, Oded is behind, is a founding thinker uh, behind the idea of the unified growth theory, and we'll get into that in a moment. And he's distilled much of his superb academic work and writing into this uh, volume, The Journey of Humanity. But maybe I could just kick off with looking at the world today, and you have said that the book is fundamentally optimistic, and I suppose rather quizzically, I might just ask you why. 
Yes, so let me clarify first that it's fundamentally optimistic, but not fundamentally naive. And um, it is based on observations that I made over the past uh, three decades about the journey of humanity, a journey that is originated in Africa 300,000 years ago and lasts to the present. And this journey is, uh, is full of anecdotes about major catastrophes and major devastating effects that are affecting the human population. And nevertheless, it is quite apparent that the human species is recovering from each of these episodes with great resolve and with greater strength. But if we think about, for instance, the Black Death, that took place in the 14th century. 40% of the European population is devastated by the Black Death, but ultimately, the implications of the Black Death are not long-lasting. The human population is recovering, and ultimately, as I said, with greater strength than what existed earlier. If we think about atrocities in the context of uh, the, 12th, the 20th century, World War I or World War II. Naturally, tens of millions of people were decimated by these events. And nevertheless, when we think about them with a wider perspective, it appears that they are naturally huge tragedies for the people that uh, went through them. But ultimately, if we think about the grand arc of human history, it doesn't appear that the human species is being derailed from any of these events. Or if we think about other events that are perhaps more uh, in line with what we experience in the context of COVID-19, the Spanish flu, 1918 to 1920, Again, major devastation, but ultimately, the human population recovered from these uh, episodes uh, without major difficulties. So yes, I mean, the current events are horrific, devastating, but nevertheless, I think that uh, the current state of gloom is sort of uh, based on inappropriate perspective that uh, the contemporary population uh, has about human existence. I mean, yes, these are terrible events, but ultimately it appears that the human species has the ability to recover from all these tragedies. It's a really helpful way of framing it. I'd like to start off um, our talk about the process of coming to your conclusions. You're an economist, um, but You've, you've really lent into the social science aspect of that and looking back over this huge arc. Can you talk us through the academic process before we get to what it is you discovered? Right, so it would be appropriate to define me as an interdisciplinary researcher. So I'm a specialist in the field of economic growth. But at the same time, I developed great expertise in the field of macro history, in the field of cultural evolution, in the field of demography, and in the mathematical field of discrete dynamical systems. And over my career, I was fascinated by the importance of initial conditions in the context of individuals, and ultimately in the context of nations. 
namely whether the place where you were born is going to affect your livelihood in the very long run, whether in fact the initial conditions are a fate, or whether people can defy their initial conditions and ultimately flourish regardless of these initial conditions. And over time, I was basically fascinated by the, the vast inequality that is present across the globe. And I was interested in understanding the origins of this vast inequality. And in the course of this uh, investigation, I develop different uh, theories and different mathematical tools that ultimately enable me to understand the process of development in, in its entirety. So part of the achievement of unified growth theory was basically a better understanding of how few individuals that resided in Africa 300,000 years ago are permitting us to understand how humanity marched forward in a way that ultimately brought about the agricultural revolution 12,000 years ago and the industrial revolution about 250 years ago and ultimately the prosperity that we experience in, in today's world. And at the same time, how this march of humanity led into this enormous inequality as we see it across the globe. So, I had a particular, I mean, I had an intellectual journey that was corresponding, if you wish, to the journey of humanity. And this intellectual journey allowed me ultimately to develop, as I said, the tools and the conceptual framework to understand the journey of humanity in its entirety. I spoke to um, Yervil Noah Harari about his um, way of working in, mm -hmm. in a, similar, um, a similar way. Now, a question I put to him, and I'd like to put it to you as well, Adet, is obviously the data sets. Economists work with data sets. The data sets to understand pre-industrial society are thin. The evidence um, has to be mixed with forms of Maybe assumption is not quite the right word, but sometimes um, pushing the logic of a situation in some way. How do you manage to smooth the notion of the data sets for the last 100 years, 150 years, maybe 200 years at the outside are relatively solid and become more solid over time? But pre that, aren't you slightly in a fog and you have to lean on heuristics and assumption in a way that could bend the conclusions you come to? So, so that's, uh, that's an important observation. And indeed, I mean, when we think about solid data sets, and uh, naturally this will lead us into the 20th century, the 21st century. Um, today, I mean, with, uh, with archival work, we can generate uh, very solid data for the 18th century, the 17th century. And before that, we do need to, to rely on uh, evidence that are perhaps more scattered, but nevertheless very reliable. And the pattern that I'm depicting, namely that over most of human existence, we do not see much progress in the context of living standards, is based on solid evidence in the sense that 
I cannot say that standard of living was such that income per capita was $400 per person per year or $1,000 per person per year, but I can certainly say with, with firm um, evidence that over most of human existence, we see that living standards are fluctuating within a very narrow band, very close to the subsistence level. This can be defined, and this can be established. And then at a certain point in the course of the past 200 years, we see this tremendous increase in living standards, where living standards measured by income per capita is increasing 14-fold within 200-year period. So the debate is whether it is 14-fold today versus perhaps half a fold over 300,000-year period, or whether, in fact, it's 14-fold versus no progress whatsoever. But the delta is so big precisely. that so it's you an, know it's you have the authority of precisely. that. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into the um, uh, unified growth theory. So you've basically nailed the coffin down on Malthus's theories around population and growth. So take us back to what you describe as the subsistence level when we could still all believe in the Malthusian uh, model that growth led to population growth, led to over-demand, lack of supply, populations decline, on you go with your subsistence level uh, existence. Take us on a journey from there and what broke that model, which presumably, as you suggest, had been working rather well for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Right. So let me take a step back and basically phrase it in the context of one of the mysteries that are being resolved in the, in the book. So the book is revolving around two fundamental mysteries that were surrounding human existence. The first one I defined as the mystery of growth, namely what brought about this dramatic transformation in living standards in the past 200 years after literally 300,000 years of near stagnation. And the second one is the mystery of inequality, namely what brought about this vast inequality in the wealth of nations. So in the context of the first mystery, that's relevant for your question, unified growth theory and the first part of the book are in fact trying to develop a coherent, unified structure that in fact will show us why is it the case that over 99.9% .9 of human existence Societies are in a state of stagnation, or if you wish, in a state of Malthusian stagnation. And then ultimately, quite spontaneously, we see the emergence of sustained economic growth. So naturally, this is a very difficult problem from a mathematical viewpoint, but it's very interesting conceptually. Let me try to walk you through the argument that is raised in the book. So, in the context of the Malthusian world, what we see is this interaction between the size of the population, the adaptation of the population, and the level of technology. So since the emergence of anatomically modern human in Africa 300,000 years ago, 
people are innovating. They're not innovating at a pace that we are innovating today, but they're innovating. One stone tool is replacing another stone tool. Progress is not made daily, but it is made over the, over the centuries and over the millennia. Now, when technology is advancing during this period, it permits people to have more resources. And when they have more resources, more of their children survive. And in addition, they can, in fact, have more children than otherwise. So then, despite this progress in technology, resources per person are declining back to their initial position. And throughout the course of human history, we see this reinforcing interaction. The level of technology determines the size of the population, but the size of the population, in turn, affects the rate of technological progress. More people, more potential innovators, more demand for their innovations, more technological progress. In addition, technological progress is changing the technological landscape in which people operate and consequently induces human adaptation. And human adaptation is important because this adaptation permits further technological progress. So in the course of human history, we see these wheels of change, technological progress, population size, and population adaptation that are reinforcing one another. The process is very slow. At any point in time, the rate of technological progress is negligible. The rate of population growth is negligible. The rate of human adaptation is negligible. But over 300,000 year period, we move gradually from stone tool technology to a steam engine technology in the eve of industrialization. And if we think about the size of the human population, despite this Malthusian stagnation, what we see is that the size of the world population 12,000 years ago, in the eve of the agricultural revolution, is about two and a half million people. And then, within 12,000 year period, the size of the world population in the midst of industrialization is about one billion people. Namely, during this epoch of stagnation, the size of the population in the world increases 400-fold, and the technological level is moving from stone tool technology to steam engine technology. So, in the course of human history, technological progress becomes faster and faster and faster, up to a point in which the technological landscape changes so rapidly that individuals and parents realize that in order to allow their children to cope with this rapidly changing technological environment, they must start to invest in the education of their children. But naturally, resources are limited. How do you educate your children with an income that is very close to subsistence? You cannot economize on your own consumption, and as a result of it, you economize on the number of children. You have less children than before, okay? And this is critical because this frees the growth process from the counterbalancing effect of population. So in the course of industrialization, technological progress accelerates, human capital starts to be formed, people start to educate their children, fertility starts to decline, and it is the decline in fertility that frees the growth process from the counterbalancing effect of population. 
And consequently, we have this holy triangle. Technological progress, human capital formation, and the decline in fertility that are permitting the world to sail into the sustained growth regime. You put that down, Oded, that's very clearly put, but you put it down to almost individual decision-making. Whereas in the 18th century, for example, in Germany, or before Germany was unified in Prussia, that actually education was to uh, create a labor force that could work in the industrial arm, in the industrial, the new industrial economy or in the army. And so it was states that realized they needed education. So what's the play between that declining birth rate and individual's decision about what is best economically for my family mm -hmm. and the actual push of the new nation state model, which needed a workforce and a military? So that's a fantastic question. And indeed, education was motivated by a variety of reasons. Some of it had to do with social cohesiveness. Some of it had to do with uh, demand in the military realm. And some of it had to do with uh, demand in the industrial sector. So what happens in the course of human history is that technological progress accelerates. As I said earlier, the technological landscape is changing and human capital becomes essential to cope with this rapidly changing technological environment. And then sooner or later, it is the industrialists that realize that in fact, in order to be competitive, they must have an educated workforce. So in fact, as I argued in the, in the book, and, it, and it with an enormous amount of evidence, it is the industrialists that are lobbying intensively in the British Parliament, for instance, for the provision of public education. Naturally, they realize that individuals are too poor to invest in the education of their children. Yes, the demand is there, the potential return is there, but they don't have the means to finance the cost of education. And consequently, it is the industrialist that realize that, in fact, there is a potential here for gain, both on the parts of the industrialists and on the part of workers. And in order to have this gain, they lobby intensely in the British Parliament, leading into the Education Act here in 1870, and ultimately into the Education Act of 1902, in which education become compulsory, universal, and free in, in Britain. So in fact, the underlying force behind what we see there is in fact the push of industrialists to educate workers. But again, it's based on the same mechanism. Namely, we reach a stage in which industrial demand for human capital is, is very strong. Individuals would like to educate their children. They cannot afford it. And then the state is intervening. Public education is being provided. And consequently, people send their kids to school. And as I said, even this is costly in other dimensions, and as a result of it, they had to economize on the number of children. We see the demographic transition, the fertility decline, and ultimately the ability of technological progress to be converted into more prosperous people rather than into more people. Yeah. So, Oda, that was that's the, um, the mystery of growth. Indeed. And how the Malthusian 
um, arc came to a stop. Mm-hmm. Take us into the mystery of inequality. Right. So the mystery of inequality is what is the origin of this vast inequality in the wealth of nations? And in addition, what brought about this divergence, enormous divergence in the wealth of nations that occurred in the past two centuries? So when the takeoff is taking place in the world economy, and as I said, on average, the world economy is experiencing a 14-fold increase in income per capita, this takeoff is not occurring in all places at the same time. Some societies are experiencing this takeoff at the beginning of the 19th century, perhaps even earlier. Other societies only towards the end of the 20th century, if at all. And given the fact that this takeoff is associated with a 14-fold increase in income per capita, it implies that those societies that are taking off first, Western European societies and their offshoots in North America and elsewhere, are diverging in terms of their wealth from the rest of the societies in the world, bringing about much of the inequality as we see today. So the second part of the book is in fact trying to explore the roots of this inequality. And the revolutionary hypothesis that is behind this second part is the idea that much of the inequality that is present and prevalent in the world today is originated in the distant past. And why is it so? As I just told you, much of the inequality that we see today emerge in the course of the differential takeoff from stagnation to growth. So if you really want to understand this inequality, we have to step back at least 200 years. But then when we step back 200 years, we realize that in order to understand the differential timing of the takeoff across the globe, we need in addition to realize that certain initial conditions that were formed in the distant past led some society for an earlier takeoff and others for a delayed takeoff. And consequently, this leads us to try to peel various layers of influence that affected inequality today. Starting, as I said, with the initial inequality as we see it at the present, moving into peeling the layer of institutions, institutions, moving deeper into the cultural factor, even deeper into geography, direct effect of geography and indirect through culture and institutions, and ultimately moving all the way back to Africa from where we are all originated, looking at the out of Africa hypothesis and its effect on human diversity and comparative economic development. Most of us will have a five-year plan. Serious legacy investors will have a 50-year plan, but very few people think about what the world will look like in 500 years. Join Intelligence Squared in partnership with Ytree to debate the motion, the world will be a better place in five, 50 and 500 years. With guests including the sculptor Sir Anthony Gormley, futurist and entrepreneur Mo Gaudat, and climate activist Clover Hogan, moderated by the journalist and broadcaster Kamal Ahmed. Register to join us live online Tuesday, 3rd of May from 7pm at y-tree.com slash futureverse. 
That's y-tree.com slash futureverse. You make sure in that journey, when you're talking about inequality, to touch on the issues around colonialism, the horrific extractive methods of slavery. I just wondered if you could balance that against the bigger historical issues that you tie in much more with the notion of culture and diversity. Because many people would argue that the reason that Europe took off in the way it was able to was fundamentally down to the extractive, sometimes militarily-led relationship it had with the breadbasket of the world. And it was only by doing that that it was able to have the experience it had of the last 200, 250 years. But you're suggesting in the book, although to be clear, you do make, have a lot of detail on um, colonialism and the extraction of slavery, but you say there are bigger things that we need to consider beyond that that will have also played a part. And that could be seen by some as being quite controversial, that if you were thinking about why has Europe grown, you only need to point to those two things to have an answer, whereas you say the answer is much more complicated. Indeed. So, so you made very valid observations, and naturally, if we think about the immediate impact of uh, colonialism, extraction, slavery on the wealth of nations, it is apparent, it is there, and it explains a significant portion of the variations in the wealth of nations. But nevertheless, it leaves us with an enormous puzzle, which is, why is it the case that Europeans are the ones to uh, colonize other societies rather than uh, vice versa? Namely, it leads us into the understanding that we, in some sense, we need to understand first variations in prosperity of nations within the old world, and we need to understand what ultimately led into uh, colonialism. So what I argue in the book, and that's important to realize, is that it appears that a takeoff, say, of England in the course of industrialization would have taken place with similar vigor, even in the absence of certain markets in the colonized world. Nevertheless, when we think about, say, the trade relationship between India and England, it is quite apparent that this trade relationship was detrimental for the development of the Indian economy and was beneficial for the development of the English economy. In what sense? So when a trade relationship is being formed between India and England, naturally this trade, this trade relationship are not necessarily free trade relationship. And what we see in the course of this trade relationship is that India is pushed to specialize in the production of raw material, in the production of primary goods that are naturally low skill intensive goods. Namely, they require relatively little education. Whereas England is specializing in the production of industrial goods that are education intensive. 
Now, that's very important because it implies that in the context of England, there is an additional demand for human capital that is catalyzing the process that I mentioned before. Higher demand for human capital, more investment in human capital, lower fertility rates, and an earlier transition from stagnation to growth. And in the context of India, we see the opposite force. Namely, India is specializing the production of raw material, primary goods, and as a result of it, there is very little demand for education. And consequently, the gains from trade, and there are gains from trade, are converted into more people, into more Indian that are being born, rather than the prosperity of the existing population. And this is basically delaying the demographic transition, delaying the, the transition from stagnation to growth in, in, uh, in India for a prolonged period of time and is generating divergence. So that's important to realize so that these forces are important. They're fundamental in explaining some of the inequality that emerge across the globe. And of course, if we augment it with extractive institutions, with slavery, it's even more pronounced than otherwise. But again, there are deeper forces that ultimately led into the position of these different societies, different continents in the context of inequality. And this is part of what is being explored in the book. So what, are, what, is that, what do you put that differential down to if it's not simply down to the asymmetric relationship between European nations and other nations across the world? If it's not simply down to that, what else is it down to? Right, so as I explained in, the, in the, the second part of the book, part of what is behind this uh, great inequality in the wealth of nations is uh, institutional factors, the adoption of differential institutions across the globe, as we can discuss. The cultural factor, namely the adoption of cultural traits that are growth enhancing in some segments of the world, and the adoption of cultural traits that are growth retarding in other uh, areas of the globe. And then geography that is in fact inducing the development of these cultural traits and institutional traits. So much of the accomplishment that is made in, in, in the argument here is the understanding the geographical endowment affects the evolution of cultural traits, affects the, the evolution of institutional traits, and is behind a significant portion of the diversion that we see across the globe. And on top of it, there is an argument that uh, I hope we will have time to discuss, which is the issue of human diversity mm -hmm. and how yeah. it interacts uh, with, uh, with comparative development. But again, I would say at the outset before uh, um, I'm creating perhaps a lack of optimism that in fact uh, the, the hopeful part about the, the book and its achievement is that in fact it provides policymakers with very concrete policy prescription that are not universal, they're country specific, they're history specific, namely understanding the history of each nation understanding the geographical endowment of each nation, understanding the, the diversity endowment of each nation, will allow us, as we will discuss later, to develop policies that could mitigate inequality as we see it across the globe today. So there is a hopeful outlook mm. there yeah. as well. 
So I'm just very aware of the time. It's been a fascinating discussion. I want to just touch on this economic, uh, sorry, the cultural traits that you, you talk about um, uh, in the book, um, the entrepreneurial spirit, future-orientated uh, mindset. I do want to talk then about diversity. There's been lots of questions already coming in on climate, obviously an essential part of this discussion, which again, you do touch on. And we'd love to then come to uh, questions from the audience here, but also some questions are coming in online, which is great to see, and some very good questions um, from around the world. Sao Paulo. Um, <laughs> hello, Rennie de Paula Jr., I think. I hope there's a Rennie de Paula Sr. as well, um, maybe uh, uh, with you. Um, so, Oded, help us with... This is the part of the book, let me be very honest, this is the part of the book I found most difficult to read this notion of cultural traits. Mm -hmm. And you've, you've created, let me put it no strong, more strongly than this, a, a lively debate around the issue of what are cultural traits and, and how could they be viewed by people not as um, benign in their thinking as, as you. When you talk about um, uh, a future-orientated mindset, well, what, do you, what, are you, what are you sort of talking about? And, is Europe unusual for having that in comparison to the Middle East of the 14th, 15th century, China in the centuries before the 10th century? I mean, there's something peculiar about the European trait which other areas of the world have not had. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't define this as a European trait, and that's not uh, the argument. In fact, the argument is, uh, is much more refined. So the argument is that geographical endowment in the distant past affected the exposure of individuals to agricultural activities in some places across the globe, and this can be regions within Europe. It's not, I mean, I think it will be deceiving to think about it in the context of Europe versus Asia or Europe versus Africa. Let's think about it just for the sake of the argument, and that's completely valid empirically. Let's think about it in the context of variations within the European continent. Suppose that some people originated in, in certain geographical territories where the soil is such that the crops that you can cultivate in the soil doesn't justify agricultural investment. You might as well do something different. Might as well have animal husbandry, you might as well gather, you might as well fish, rather than be engaged in agricultural investment. Now why is it so important? Agricultural investment is associated with the ability to delay gratification, in the sense that you plant today and you harvest four months from now, six months from now, nine months from now. So this process is critical in the ability of individuals to plan for the future, to be future-oriented. Okay? So the argument is, and as I said, this is a very strong empirical argument, it is well-founded empirically, is that across the globe, and within each continent in the globe, those societies that were originated from places where the return to agricultural investment are higher than otherwise, are more long-term oriented, are more future-oriented, in the sense that, I mean, if you think about it in terms of contemporary outcomes, they smoke less, they're more educated, they, uh, they, uh, they have protected sex, etc. So they're future-oriented, and again, you can trace this future orientation to the legacy that existed hundreds of years ago and thousands of years ago in terms of agricultural endowment. 
So this is critical because when we think about future-oriented mindset, this is a very critical element in the growth process. When we take education decisions, it is based on our ability to be forward-looking. When we save, it is based on the ability to be forward-looking. So the entire growth process is predicated on this notion of long-term orientation. And it appears that this long-term orientation can be traced, as I said, to geographical variations across the globe that generated the ability of some societies to be engaged in agricultural investment and consequently cultivated this cultural trait of future-oriented mindset, and other societies were deprived from this. Now again, does it imply that we have uh, historical determinism or geographical determinism? Not at all. So when the World Bank is advancing certain policies, and basically the main policies that are being advanced are educate your people and, uh, and uh, assure proper family planning. So targeting fertility and targeting education. This is a fantastic policy, but it has to be refined fundamentally. Because again, we have limited resources. If we target a population that is originated in a part of the world that lacks long-term orientation due to the geographical endowment, then again, the curriculum should be such that in these societies, one must emphasize elements that are associated with long-term orientation. So we know, for instance, that the musical instrument is a fantastic tool to teach children how to invest and ultimately reap the benefits years later. And so the curriculum should be structured around these ideas. And in this respect, as I said, long-term orientation is not basically suggesting that we can define a particular continent as more future-oriented than others. As I said, my empirical research here shows that this is true within a country. This is true within a continent, and this is true across continents too. But the variations can have different, uh, different level of aggregations. Just, it just might seem odd to some that that future-orientated mindset, which, which supported growth in large parts of Europe, didn't appear over the last 200 of years, 250 years, to have existed to any great degree in any part of the continent of Africa. It seems, I, I just found that a struggle that the growth story is a story around European uh, mega-growth, and which has not been reflected in in, let's just, Africa is just an example, where there were um, some areas at least, not as many maybe as across some parts of Europe, were areas where agriculture was, could have been of the mm -hmm. type that you, 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 you describe, but nevertheless, something appears to have happened that has meant that all the nations of that continent were stuck in um, a low growth situation that's where I slightly struggled with how can I understand your thesis. Right, so the thesis is broader than that. And as I said, I mean, uh, uh, perhaps unlike others, I'm receptive to the idea that there are multiple forces uh, in operation. And as I said, the issue of diversity is critical, and we will get to it. Geography is important, both in terms of the disease environment, if you, you mention Africa, and in terms of the impact of, the, of geography on cultural evolution. Uh, 
institutions are very important, okay? And colonialism is very important. So the different elements at play, and if you want to understand, uh, say, the growth tragedy as it is defined in the context of Africa, then we will have to invoke many of these arguments. It's not based on a single force. And as you said, in the context of Africa, there are fertile areas in which long-term orientation is more pronounced than others. There are less fertile areas in which long-term orientation is less pronounced. And this is true within the European continent as well. So we have basically to think about it holistically. We have to think about the different forces that are operating, that are affecting different ethnic groups, different regions, different societies, different nations. Help us with diversity, how we understand diversity, because again, what you've done in the book is you've stepped right back from the debate as it is now to be considering how diversity at the correct level, as you argue, is helpful to that growth arc. Indeed. So, so let me remind you about the unique structure of the book. So the book is, is divided into two uh, fundamental parts. The first one is marching forward from the origins of humans in Africa 300,000 years ago to the present. The second one is in fact reversing the order, starting with the present inequality across the globe, and then peeling gradually different layers of influence. And as we peel these layers of influence, we move, as I said, from institutions that perhaps were formed 300 years ago, 500 years ago, and earlier into cultural elements that were formed in the past, into geography that affects economic development directly and indirectly through culture and institution. This leads us ultimately into the onset of the Neolithic Revolution that occurred 12,000 years ago, and ultimately, we go to the deepest root of comparative development, namely the out-of-Africa hypothesis. So at a certain point, 60 to 90,000 years ago, the human species is departing from Africa. And during this exodus from Africa, individuals that are departing do not carry the entire spectrum of diversity that existed in Africa. And why is it so? Well, the initial population in Africa is relatively small. Departing population is relatively small. And as a result of it, the sampling is not representative sampling because of limited population. So as population are departing, they carry with them only a subset of the diversity that existed initially. Now, the initial population settles, say, in the Fertile Crescent, in close proximity to the African continent. They settle there, the carrying capacity of the environment is enormous, and as a result of it, they multiply very rapidly. This multiplication by itself is not generating significant amount of diversity beyond what existed in the initial population. But at a certain point, the carrying capacity of the environment is insufficient to feed the people, and another group is departing. So some people will move from the Fertile Crescent into Europe around 45,000 years ago, others will venture eastward into Asia and ultimately into the America, crossing the Bering Strait around 25,000 years ago, venturing into North America 
between 14 and 23,000 years ago, and ultimately into South America around 14,000 years ago. So in this process, we see declining level of diversity. Every population that is departing is taking a subset of the original diversity that existed. Now, why is it so important? So diversity has conflicting effects on prosperity. On the one hand, diversity is associated with cross-fertilization of ideas, complementarity of traits, and as a result of it, more innovations than otherwise. But on the other hand, diversity is associated with social non-cohesiveness. We can show, and I showed empirically, that diversity is associated with mistrust. Diversity is associated with disagreement about the desirable public goods. Some people would like more education, others would like less education, some, some individuals would like to see redistribution policies, others something different, and this is a source of conflict. And conflict, naturally, is a source of reduction in productivity. So we have two conflicting effects of diversity. And this implies that societies that are very diverse, or societies that are very homogeneous, will not perform as well as societies that are somewhere in between, namely societies that have a sweet spot level of diversity. Now, when we think about it empirically, this implies that somehow nature designed a certain randomness of diversity across the globe. Namely, there was an optimal distance from Africa in terms of diversity that is conducive for productivity at a certain point in time. Now, what do we see empirically? And that's very interesting. But when you look at the world in the year 1500, <clears throat> it appears that the societies that are optimally diverse, that have the diversity level that is conducive for productivity, are China, Japan, Korea, societies that we typically do not associate with diversity level that is conducive for productivity. But remember, the year 1500 is very different than today's world. This is a time period in which technological innovations are not very rapid. And as a result of it, the benefit of homogeneity in terms of social cohesiveness dominates the adverse effect in terms of lack of creativity and innovations. So this is the sweet spot level of diversity. But then what do we see in the course of human history? China is dominating the world in the Middle Ages, but ultimately it is Europe that is taking over in the course of industrialization. And why is it so? Well, Europe is in fact culturally very fluid, is very diverse in comparison to China. And then when technological progress accelerates and the virtues of diversity in terms of technological progress are mounting, in fact, it is Europe that is taking over and is taking off first in the, con in the course of industrialization. So when we look at empirical evidence from the present world, it appears that today, the societies that are optimally diverse are the societies that are closely related to the US society. Namely, this is the place where the sweet spot is present, where the benefits of diversity in terms of innovations is, is, is mm -hmm. properly balancing the adverse effect in terms of, um, in terms of social cohesiveness. 
Now, so this is mind-boggling because it implies that an event that occurred as early as 60,000 years ago is still lingering. And in fact, empirical research is showing that 17 to 25% of the variations in, in inequality across the globe today can be traced to this event, which, as I said, is mind-boggling, but when you think about it deeply enough, it's quite well understood. We will get to climate show, but I, just, I have to ask you that we did speak about <coughs> this um, uh, backstage. That means that from this argument, the growth of China might simply be an episode in that longer arc where the notion of the 20th century being the American century and the 21st century being the century of China may actually be a blip on an arc where, in the end, America's going to, this is the wrong way to put it, but bear with me, keep winning, in a sense. <laughs> is that reasonable? <laughs> yes, so I think it's reasonable, and I think that, in fact, at least based on my research, that's the right conclusion. So, so the idea is the following. China was dominating the world in the Middle Ages because of cohesiveness. So within a technological regime, China is fantastic because if in fact you have the technology on the shelf and you bring the technology from the shelf and you employ it and you have a cohesive labor force, you will be more efficient in production and you'll prosper. This is what we see in the context of China in the Middle Ages. But now, when a new technology is looming in the horizon, when industrialization is about to occur, then again, Europe has the upper hand because you need this cultural fluidity to allow you to make this transition. Now, with some delay, a few hundred years, China naturally adopted Western-style uh, uh, um, econo economics. And at the moment, is basically borrowing technologies or bringing technologies that, that are present in the shelf and innovating to a large extent independently. But again, this is not going to be long-lasting. It's not going to be long-lasting because in order to be innovative, you need to be more diverse. And China is overly homogeneous for its own good. So yes, China will converge, not fully, will converge up to a certain bound. And assuming that the world will experience another technological change or another technological paradigm, again, China will be left behind because they will not have the flexibility to adjust to this changing world. That's the prediction. Is there more in the nature of human beings as individuals that brings us together despite all the worrying signals of the things that divide us? Yeah, so that's, uh, that's a complex uh, question, but particularly if you think about it from an evolutionary viewpoint. Naturally, we are part of the scheme of nature, and we evolve in a particular way to be, uh, to be competitive on the one hand and to cooperate when it's needed. So naturally, there is a tension between these two dimensions of, uh, of selection to which uh, humans were exposed. On the one hand, we, we were selected to be uh, selected on the basis of the selfish gene, if you wish, so as to, uh, to assure our survival relative to others. On the other hand, we learned how to cooperate because we are not alone in the world, and cooperation was uh, 
was very important. Now, as, I mean, so if I think about it in the context of the contemporary period, and if I think about it in the context of the 20th century and the 21st century, again, my feeling is that over time we do see a tendency for uh, human to cooperate more than otherwise. And despite uh, the, the horrible atrocities that we're experiencing at the moment, we do see something very fundamental that is sort of prevailing. In the context of the Ukraine crisis, at least what strikes me as something very fundamental and very important is precisely this spirit of civil liberties, the spirit of freedom that is ultimately able to conquer the enormous amount of resources that the Russians are investing in order to demolish the Ukraine population. So, what I learned from this individually is that somehow this spirit that is not necessarily, I mean, it's partly individual, but partly collective, because naturally individuals themselves could not have defeated uh, the Russians in the, in the Ukraine battlefield. It requires first the individual spirit and the individual cherish of freedom, but in addition, it requires the collective action. So in this respect, perhaps I'm more hopeful uh, than otherwise. Oded, thank you so much. I always love when reading a book, if it challenges my thinking and makes me think differently. And the journey of humanity certainly did that for me. So thank you very much for bringing it to all of us. Um, thank you to Intelligence Square, to Hannah and the whole team for bringing us together IRL in real life. It's been a joy to be actually in front of breathing human beings uh, for once. Oded, thank you very much. Thank you the audience for coming and thank you online as well for being so engaged in the conversation. Good night. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.